Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. Thank you for downloading, subscribing and rating. I really appreciate all of your support. Coming up on this week's programme, we have the most crazy story for you. Uh, We're going to be speaking to a researcher who has managed for the first time to teleport an image from one place to the next without it ever passing in between those two places. An absolutely insane story of science fiction. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us, science.newstalk.com. You can uh, also find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. Uh, we get to all of your comments at the end of the podcast. First, though, it's time to look back at the uh, breaking stories from the world of science this week. We're joined by Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Leanne Shanley from the School of Biochemistry and Immunology at Trinity College, Dublin. Um, We're going to start off with uh, a story, Shane, about a species I had never heard of, a gigantic primate. Who were or what were these things? Yeah, they lived for quite a long time and they were huge. I'd never heard of them either, but it was published a story this week in Nature um, about them. Gigantopithecus blackeye, a primate. Uh, It lived in Southeast Asia around two million years ago, would have been its prime. It was incredibly three metres high, right? Three metres tall. Yeah, exactly. And it weighed between 200 and 300 kilograms. So... Well, that's quite light. I mean, I'm almost 180, I would have thought. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like it some days. Um, <laughs> but that's like, there are definitely humans that are 150. Like, that's not... But three metres, that's Three metres tall. This, this was the largest primate that has ever existed. And it existed in Southeast Asia. And uh, yeah, I just think it's remarkable that such species could have existed and lived for such a long time. And yet we still don't fully know why they died out and when exactly they died out. And that's what this study is about. And they looked at dental records. Uh, to, to figure and then, out. <laughs> is dental records all they have? Um, well, yeah, I guess so. It's all they have that's 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 left in this story. And they found um, giganto teeth. Doesn't say where the teeth are actually gigantic, but they found their teeth in 11 caves in China, as well as a lot of sediment that would have been uh, in and around where those teeth were. So they were able to tell not just about the species um, and in, in order to date it using the various different types of isotopic uh, dating, but also to tell about what like things were in the air around them, pollen, etc. So they could tell a lot about the the environment in which these these creatures lived. But just to be sure, we're saying th- I, I always go back to that Monty Python sketch. I don't know if you remember it of the anthropo the um, paleontologist finds like a tooth and it looks like this and just makes something up. And um, we don't have any long bones of of this three meter long we don't have a giant skull of this primate we don't have it's it's it wasn't the primary focus of this study so do, do we have any like long limbs of these gigantos or or because the teeth alone just seems like not enough to be able to claim these things were three meter long yeah you couldn't infer much from just having the dental record so they have the jaw and they have other parts of the creature and they're able to uh, to make fairly accurate estimates as to what these creatures would have looked like. If right. you can tell how tall they were and how heavy they were, they know a lot. Um, um, but what they don't know is why they died out. And it has always been postulated that their diet changed because of some some factor and that would have led to their death. 
um, which is exactly what happened, right? There was a period of natural climate change in the earth at that time. So it went from a a relatively stable period to a change. And so where these guys lived went from being a lush forest to being more open forest with grassland. And because they were quite kind of niche in their diets, because they were so big, they couldn't adapt as well as creatures around them. And so they died out. Right. It's like, well, that's just the way natural selection works. But unfortunately for us, we don't have creatures like that to go and look at and to enjoy and to imagine and to think are great. But they lived once upon a time. So if you have kids in the car, try and get them to imagine an ape the size of three metres tall and then Google megafauna, uh, extinct megafauna, because history is littered with the most crazy creatures. And there was a giant rhino that was, I think, uh, three metres at the shoulder High. What? Yeah, that that has gone extinct. The 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 uh, ancestor to to rhinos. There was giant badgers and giant um, every every sort of animal you can think used to be enormous. It seems so. Uh, Google megafauna if you're bored and uh, and and want to stay inside. Um, Leanne, our second story uh, has to do with love. Yes, so this is perhaps a good news story for anyone who's going through a breakup or has is, is dealing with the loss of someone that they loved. Scientists believe that they have found a chemical signature that's written into the brain of people in a relationship with someone that they uh, like or love a lot or are very close to. Um, so we know that dopamine is a, a neurotransmitter and a hormone that's massively important for rewards um, and kind of producing feelings of pleasure. And it's very much involved in our social interactions. And we know that dopamine is released or increased when we're with someone that we particularly like, um, usually a partner maybe not to the same extent with, let's say, an acquaintance or a work colleague. The problem is a lot of these studies have taken place in rodents that don't do one crucial thing, and that is they don't form monogamous pairs the same way that humans do. So um, a group of researchers have used the prairie vole, which is a rodent that does choose a life partner. They meet on vole, bumble, settle down, (laughs) have a few little voles of their own, you know yourself. Um, And they conducted a series of tests um, with these voles by tagging their um, dopamine release. They used... Uh, a fluorescent biosensor in the brains of the voles. So they set up a couple of levers. They had um, the life partner of the vole on one side of a closed door and a novel vole or a stranger vole on the other side. And they monitored the reaction of the vole to seeing their partner or seeing a stranger. Nice. Yeah, so they found that dopamine increased in both cases. There is a a social advantage to uh, approaching a new vole or interacting with a uh, a new person. But dopamine was released uh, like a firework, essentially, in the brains of the voles who encountered their partner and their behaviours were different. They would approach the vole more readily. They uh, engaged in huddling behaviours and they wouldn't do this, obviously, to the same extent with the stranger vole. So there was a release of dopamine observed um, as they went to press the lever that they learned uh, allowed them access to their partner and that release of dopamine was sustained when they were cuddling and cozying up to their partner vole. So then the researchers decided to do something maybe a little bit cruel. They decided to make the voles break up, essentially. So they separate. Oh my God. I know, yeah. Science can be cruel. Biologists are the worst. They're the worst. (laughs) Anyway, let's move on. I can't defend this one, but at least it gives us a little bit of insight maybe into ourselves. So they separated the voles for a period of four weeks. So that might not seem much to you and I, but to a vole, that's the equivalent of about six years of a vole's lifetime. And then they performed the same tests. So they popped the vole into the chamber. They had their ex-partner on one side and they had a novel vole on the other. And they found the dopamine levels in the brain of the vole were similar for both the stranger and the ex-partner vole. But what was interesting was that their behaviours were similar. 
So they would still approach their ex-partner more readily. They'd still huddle um, to a greater extent than they would with the stranger. So they remembered their partner, but they did not feel the same rush of dopamine. So the chemical signature essentially had faded with time. And the researchers believe this would translate to humans and can account for, you know, why people have that saying, time heals all wounds and uh, people recover from breakups the longer that they're out of it. Really interesting, Leanne. Thanks very much. Um, Okay, our third story is an interesting one, Shane, because... uh, it's sort of a, in in some ways, it's sort of a construct. It, it's the idea that the moon is enter, entering something like the Anthropocene for, for Earth. Yeah, a, a, another paper from Nature, Nature Geosciences, has made that claim. And when I looked at it first, I was like, ah, come on. Like, we've we've only gone there a few times. Surely we haven't sent enough of our rubbish and stuff up there to interfere with the the, the lunar environment. And so for it to be an Anthropocene, it would be that the environment of the moon has been and is now affected by or influenced by human activity. So we... That's, that's what we call, when we would talk about the Anthropocene and Earth, we talk about a new uh, sort of era for this planet uh, that that humans are responsible for this a dramatic change. When we look at climate change, we, we say that's part of the Anthropocene. Yeah, and you can see it in the makeup of the planet itself. Yeah. So we, since the 1950s, have been sending stuff to the moon with the first uh, thing being actually a Soviet uh, mission, Lunar 2. Um, and since then, we have left an incredible 187,400 kilograms of stuff on the moon. What? Yes, I was amazed as well. And of that, there's equipment like the the buggies and things like, you know, the like the various stuff that they couldn't bring back right? Even stupid stuff like golf balls, right? Um, And the flags, of course. And 96 bags of human waste um, is there. Yeah. Now, they they do say that one day they'd like to bring it all back, right? But I think what's important here from an anthropogenic point of view, right, is the craters that uh, we're creating. So when when we go to the moon, it's a dusty atmosphere. It doesn't have an atmosphere. It is a a dusty place, rather, because it doesn't have an atmosphere. So when you disturb the lunar surface, the impressions last. So yeah. you can think of that iconic photograph of the the footprint or the boot print from the Apollo 11 mission. Um, but it's only one of, of hundreds of impressions on the moon. There are 58 significant craters on the surface of the moon that we've caused by landing things there. Because it's sort of a, a, a soft surface. It's one of the problems with Mid-tees. setting up a, a moon yep. station there is that it's so dusty, it, you sort of sink into the surface when you when you land on the moon, right? It's not, it's not, it looks like a rock, but it's not very rocky on the surface. Yeah, there certainly is dust. And actually, there was a lot of thought given to how much dust is there. And if you landed, would you just sink into it, right, before they went there? But um, the consequence of rising all this dust is that we may create a halo around the moon. Um, and so that would completely disturb the lunar environment. Now, right. I know nothing lives there or anything like that, but it, is it for us, I suppose, Marley, to go out and to start destroying things that are outside of our own home and leaving our rubbish there? So this is important because we're in an era of returning to the moon and there's a huge amount of, of interest in terms of extracting materials from the moon to, to fuel our modern world. And I guess it's a lesson that... N- even though we can be quite advanced, we can't reverse engineer these things. So yeah. we have to make decisions as to how much stuff we want to send and acknowledge we have an influence off, off our planet now. Leanne, our final story has to do with hedgehogs and lawnmowers. It does. So building on from what Shane was saying, the moral surrounding human involvement in destruction of, uh, of natural things, specifically the hedgehog population in Europe. 
So we know that uh, the hedgehog population is on, on decline and this is due to a myriad of factors like the loss of their natural habitats, road traffic ac- accidents. And now we're going to add one more thing to that list and that is the rising industry of robotic lawnmowers. So there's been reported a huge increase, I know, we're making very sad faces in the studio here, a huge increase in the amount of injuries and deaths um, of hedgehogs being reported as a result of um, the use of robotic lawnmowers. So a group in Oxford University has decided to tackle this problem head on. So they're led by Dr. Sophie Lund Rasmussen. You can find her at Dr. Hedgehog online. Um, and what her team have done, they have looked into the behaviours of hedgehogs in response to lawnmowers. And they've also looked into the behaviours of lawnmowers in response to hedgehogs. Um, So they performed two studies. In one study, they examined how a um, a range of different brands of mowers responded to, well now this is a bit disgusting, hedgehog carcasses. Now these hedgehogs died of natural causes. They were given to them by hedgehog rehabilitation centres and they found that... These hedgehogs were just lying around. Exactly. They were just resting in their account. So (laughs) they found at best the lawnmowers would nudge off the carcass before changing direction and obviously at worst they would cause immense damage to these hedgehog carcasses. Um, So then they decided to see, well, I suppose your natural question is, would the hedgehog not just run away? That's a big foreign object kind of trundling towards it, blades Mm. going 90. Um, So they decided to assess the behaviours of hedgehogs when they saw the approaching mower. So they got um, a team of 50 hedgehogs and they found that they displayed three distinct behaviours. Either they did run away in some cases, um, but in the majority of cases, they just froze and curled up into a ball and just kind of awaited their uh, impending doom. And in the third case, and this was in the case of more juvenile hedgehogs, they'd actually approach the mower and try and sniff it and, and display inquisitive behaviours. So in the latter two, not very good news for no. the hedgehogs. No. No. Not oh, at all. God. So another reason not to cut your grass. And, well, yeah, but yeah. I th- they're, they're looking to get like hedgehog certification with these, land, uh, with these lawnmowers, which I think is actually a, a great idea. But like, you know, if you are, I understand why people might have a big long lawn and this is, you know, the sort of place you live in. But I suppose there is a huge amount of responsibility when you just turn on a killing machine for little animals and then stick it in your garden. <laughs> um, really interesting. Uh, Leanne and uh, Shane, thank you so much for joining us. Now, while the old saying of knowledge is power is as true today as it was when Francis Bacon first coined the term back in the late 1500s, the speed at which we send information is just as powerful. We've been witness to this through the years as we laid Atlantic telegraph cables in the 1860s, sent satellites into space, and now perhaps we stand again on the precipice of a new age of rapid communication with research into teleportation. Well, Professor Andrew Forbes from the School of Physics at WITS University in South Africa joins me now to talk about his work. Uh, Andrew, this is so mind-boggling, this research, uh, that it, it deserves a proper and clear explanation from the start. So we're talking about transferring information from one place to another without it ever physically passing between the two places. Give me the basics. How does this? How does something like this happen? <laughs> That's right. No, isn't it? It's perplexing, and and I think what makes it so perplexing is that it's something we don't ever experience in our everyday lives. Right? We only see it on science fiction movies, but in the quantum world, this idea of very spooky action at a distance, the weirdness of quantum allows it to happen. And you know, the only thing that's needed is a resource. Imagine, for instance, that you want to share the information with your bank. The only thing that we need for this to work is the bank sends you one particle of light. And this particle of light has to have no information whatsoever. And by sending it to you, 
it establishes a link between who wants to send information and who wants to receive it. And just that link is what you need to make it work. The, the basics are, or the fundamentals of this is quantum entanglement. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. So when the bank sends you this one photon to establish the link, the crux of the matter is that it's one of a pair. So photons come in pairs when they're entangled. And the bank keeps one safely in their office, and they send one to you to establish the link. And it turns out that if they just watch the other one that they're holding, they'll see the information on it that you're trying to send. So what's really important to explain to people here is that we're not talking about uh, a code to unlock something that is already stored on the bank's computer. Um, it's not like uh, the bank has all the information and the code um, just decrypts it. Uh, we're talking nope. about a, a transfer of information without the information passing through any space. Do, 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 do I have that right? That's absolutely correct. So when you usually think about transferring information from one person to another, you, you do exactly what you've just said. You imagine that the information flows across, maybe across the fiber network, maybe across your Wi-Fi, and then you say, oh, but maybe somebody's listening in, so let me encrypt it somehow and make it secure. But nevertheless, you imagine the information is moving from person A to person B, from you to the bank. But indeed, in this case, that never happens. And the reason it never happens is that the bank is sending you this one particle of light, and this particle's got no information whatsoever because the bank doesn't know what you want to send. And what happens in our scheme is that you take this particle of light, you overlap it with the information that you want to send, and almost like magic, although it's not magic, it's quantum physics, by overlapping it on your side, the bank sees the same information on their side. And the resource, as you correctly said at the beginning, that makes this really work is that the bank has got these two entangled photons. And, you know, entanglement means that when you do something to the one, the other one is affected. And in this case, by overlapping your information on the one, the bank sees the information on the other one. So while this was um, theoretically possible before now, um, we did have evidence that it was uh, possible to do in the practical world, right? The, uh, there was uh, researchers in China who managed to, to send a, a simple bit um, through uh, from China. Was it from China to, to a satellite? Um and, 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 That's right. Yeah. You've managed to do this with, with an image. Can I ask, what is this image of? And what does it look like? Well, let me take one step back and refer to the excellent work that you mentioned, the Chinese group, and in fact, also an Austrian group. So the state of the art before this advance was to send either what we would call in technical parlance, a two-dimensional state or a three-dimensional state. But for your listeners, you can think of it like this. Two dimensions means two pixels, and three dimensions means three pixels. So imagine you want to send a picture to somebody, but you're only allowed three pixels. Well, that's not a very elaborate picture, right? Mm. Our typical smartphones have got thousands of, or millions, in fact, of pixels. So what our scheme lets you do is to send, in principle, as many pixels as you want. In practice, in our lab, we've gone up to 15 now, 15 doesn't sound very impressive compared to the millions of your, of your smartphones. So there's still a lot of work to be done. 
But in principle now, the scheme allows any number to be sent. It's now a technical challenge and not a fundamental physics challenge. So it's a, it's a giant leap forward, and it's possible because we have this strange detector in our scheme that doesn't require a very complicated um, implementation of the experiment. Can we pause for a second and try to at least hypothesize as to how something like this would work? I mean, quantum entanglement right. in, in and of itself sounds crazy. Do we know how it's possible to teleport? And, and it really is teleportation that we're talking about, to teleport an image from one place to the other without it ever passing uh, the, uh, outside the borders of, of the, the room it was made in. It depends on the level of understanding we want to claim we have. Hmm. So on the one hand, we can use entanglement, which is the resource that we're, we're applying here. We can use it really as a technology. And your listeners may know that, in fact, last year, the Nobel Prize for Physics went to entanglement and teleportation. Hmm. So as a resource, we understand it perfectly. We can put it into practice. But if you dig, dig a little bit deeper and you say, well, how does this entanglement really work? How is it that one photon is somehow correlated or connected to another photon that can be infinitely far apart, the other side of the universe? Well, that part we don't fully understand. Mm. And there's a raging debate in the community as to, you know, why does it do that? How does it do that? Right now, all we can say is it does do that, and we know how to use it. <laughs> well, okay. So when you say you pass the photon from you to the bank, for example, uh, is this simply um, uh, something along a fiber? Is, is it like a, an email or a, a fiber optic pulse, or, um, or does it need light yeah, and sight? What, what, how do you send this single photon? And how on earth does, from all the billions of photons that are out there, how does the bank identify the correct photon that, that unentangles the, the information at the other side? Yeah, brilliant question. So, so let, let me talk you through and your listeners how this might work. The bank has a box and the box produces two entangled photons. So imagine the bank is holding these two particles of light. And what it's going to do is it's going to send one of them to you because it's it's it knows, or perhaps you've told the bank you have something sensitive that you want to transfer to them. Right. So the bank sends you one photon. Well, the bank doesn't know what you're going to send. So this photon, of course, has got no information whatsoever. It's coming from the bank. What do you do? So you're sitting at your home. You might have a, a laser scanner or, or you know, some, some document that you want to send across. You scan it with some lights, and we give you a box. And this is the crux of how our experiment works. This box has got a nonlinear detector. It's really not important for your listeners how it works, but it's crucial to the technical aspects of the experiment. Hmm. So what do you do? You overlap. In other words, you take the photon from the bank and you put it into this box and you put the, the light scan of your information, maybe the laser scan of your fingerprint also into this box. And what this box will do is it will overlap the two pieces of information. Remember, they're both stored in light. And when that happens, the bank's photon now has altered. It somehow got mixed up with your information, if I put it in a very simple way. Mm. 
Now, the bank, remember, still has a photon. It still has a particle of light on their end. They send their particle to a camera or to a, a decryptor. And what they see is that when they look at the information that their photon now has, the one they didn't send away, they find it has the same information as what you wanted to send. So the only thing, yes, the only thing that has to happen is that the bank must be able to get one photon to you. Mm. And how they do that can be whatever way is easiest. As you said, maybe down optical fiber, you know, you could be sitting an island and sending this photon across the network to the U.S., now, there are many, many technical challenges. As you say, they, you have to find this one photon in a sea of many others. So it's not a simple procedure, but it can be done. And, and, and as we mentioned, just for people who might have just joined us, that the, the reason this works is because at the beginning, these two photons are entangled with each other, which means that um, if one, uh, if you sort of turned one uh, black, the other one would turn white. Um, uh, uh, or turn one on, the other one would turn off, or spin one left, the other would spin one right. If you perform an action on one side, the other side will then do the opposite reaction. Is that right? That's right. That's a good way to think about it. So the the essential ingredient is that the bank has these two entangled photons, and by sending one to you, you can think that your house and the bank's offices are now connected, but they're not connected by just a, a strand of optical fiber. They're connected by a quantum link because the fiber doesn't do anything by itself and sending light back and forward between the bank and you, that also doesn't do anything special. We do that all the time when we do our banking online. It's this entanglement that is now shared between you and the bank that makes the process work. What, what do these um, devices look like? Because, of course, if you, can, um, if you can create one bit or now you can create 15 bits, you know, you're starting to get to the, you know, the very early computers level of, of information. Uh, if you imagine those, um, those uh, pixels as, as being switches, you know, the more of those you get, the, the more complicated the information can be. And this is how we started off sending our first emails and telegrams, of course. So um, how big are these machines and how many machines might you need to send a very simple uh, email that might say, hello world, for example? <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Fantastic question. Well, you'll be very dismayed if you came to my lab and had to look at the experiment because it takes up um, roughly the size of a a medium coffee table. Wow. So let's say a couple of square meters, right? So it's pretty large at the moment, and it certainly doesn't fit into your cell phone or onto your laptop. Mm. But as you said, if you think back to the early days of computers, they took up entire rooms, sometimes entire buildings. What's important is the physics, I guess. And so I'm in the school of physics, and the physics says that the, this particular implementation shouldn't need to change in any fundamental way if you want to send a billion pixels. So it means that all we have to do now is work on the engineering of it. We can certainly make it smaller. We can certainly make it more robust. It's not particularly cheap at the moment. We can definitely improve on that. And I don't see any problem to increase the number of pixels that we can send in the image. So it looks a little bit cumbersome at the moment. You still need a PhD student to be operating it. 
Hmm. Those are not very desirable properties to deploy <laughs> the technology. Or, or, the, or the PhD some sometimes. That's right. So, <laughs> but in time, that will come right. It's definitely another route towards a quantum network that uses teleportation. This is insane. This is absolutely an insane conversation. And, and I presume it, it means the end at some point of encryption. There'll be no need to encrypt stuff because you're not sending it anywhere anymore. You're not, you're not sending encrypted information like your, your password or your, your credit card details. Um, and no one will be able to snoop. No one will be able to listen in on you. I mean, uh, this, this is both um, That's right. very liberating, but also very um, scary technology in a way. Well, look, I mean, what is the flip side of the coin? And the flip side of the coin is that people are trying to use entanglement to make very, very powerful quantum computers. And what can a quantum computer do? Well, when they work properly and doesn't look like that's very far away, they can start to break our mathematical encryption machines. Hmm. So once that happens, well, then um, goodbye to your online banking, right? Yeah. So that is a serious threat. Now, quantum, on the one hand, has the threat, but it also has the answer. And the answer is to use the same resource to make your link fundamentally secure. Mm. So we, and, and not just as many, many people across the world, are working very hard towards future quantum networks because this is the most secure way to make links between sensitive um, nodes on a network. How far away are we from something like that from from being able to send uh, files, signatures, or or images, you know, um, of passports, that sort of thing, in this way, is it twenty years? Difficult to predict. It could. It's certainly a, at least a decade away, mm. because there's a lot of work that has to be done to integrate this into systems, to make it smaller, and to make it. And the big hurdle is to make it more efficient. So right now, it's not a very efficient process because of the way we do it. That has to improve dramatically. Mm. I would say that what's happening, if I were to look at the global picture, and you mentioned yourself, the Chinese have this beautiful satellite experiment. I guess what's going to happen over the next decades is we'll see these little pieces of the puzzle kind of come together to form the complete picture. So our scheme will integrate to what the people are doing with satellites, which will integrate to the fiber network. And slowly, we'll see what we call the classical network. It's basically our everyday network having more and more of a quantumness on top of it yeah. so that we have the speed and the security. Um, you didn't answer my question about the image, Andrew, and I wanted to finish with that. What, what was the image that was sent? 15 pixels, as you say, is not a huge amount. Was it a letter or a, a symbol? <laughs> it was a very, a very nerdy combination of patterns of light that would be unrecognizable to my mother, but very recognizable to my students and the people who read the papers. So uh, <laughs> it's a, it nothing, was an in-joke. Of, of, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Very it, it, looks like a, it looks like a very exotic flower. Okay. Well, really interesting and uh, amazing to speak with you. Professor Andrew Forbes from the School of Physics at WITS University in South Africa, whose work has involved sending the first ever teleported image. Um, really, really fascinating speaking with you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much, Johnson.
All right. Uh, it's time to look back at some of your comments from last week. And if you remember, we were talking about uh, urine and uh, what is it for? Um, Catherine says, I wonder if urine will have a more yellow colour after eating meat due to the extra haemoglobin. Um, that didn't come up. That wasn't one of the reasons why um, your wee is yellow. It was more to do with this waste um, thing that gets converted in the gut. Um David says, sorry now, but if you have green or purple urine, there's definitely a problem. Yes, indeed. You don't need to be a doctor to know that. And you do need a doctor if that happens. Um, Podrick on Twitter says, my under 15 hurling son recently had a session on hydration and urine colour. And I think the Dublin senior footballers don't get to train if their urine isn't clear enough. Wow, that's amazing. So if they're not hydrated, they don't get to train. That's incredible. That is real devotion to the science, isn't it? Um, Breed says, if you have a UTI, does that affect the colour? It does indeed, Breed. It goes a bit cloudy. I have heard. <laughs> um, no, we, we, we learned that last week. It does go cloudy. Uh, that's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Uh, do um, let us know what you made of this week's podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us, science at newstalk.com or find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. Thanks to Marisa Sullivan, Simon Keane, Aidan McKelvey, Steve Daunt, and uh, the man who sounds like a footballer, Hugo de Silva on sound. We'll see you next time on Future Proof Tuesday in your podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sundays from midday on News Talk.